If you don't have a Bible open, there are some under your seats, as Megan mentioned earlier. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This warning about dangerous people, if we're looking at the flow of chapter 16, it feels like a little bit of an interruption, right? There's commands to greet people in the first piece of chapter 16 up until verse 16, and then there's this warning thrown in, and then there's more greetings at the end. And it's intentional, and this is why. Because in the opening verses of chapter 16, Paul is saying, hey, you should greet these people. Greet so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. That was the sermon from last week that Tommy gave us. But then Paul is kind of saying, but before I even tell you that other people say hello to you, first I need to warn you about dangerous people. And so far, Paul has been talking in verse, uh, chapter 16 about the beautiful harmony of the church, with its various body parts working in symphony. But now in verses 17 and 18, he says, watch out. That's exactly, that's the text here. Watch out for these dangerous people because they will disrupt that beautiful, harmonious functioning that we just got done celebrating. That's why he inserts this warning here. And so there are four characteristics in verses 17 and 18 that these dangerous people have. And I'll list them off here. Number one is they cause divisions. That's verse 17. Number two, they create obstacles. That's also verse 17. The Greek is also rendered elsewhere, stumbling blocks. So whether obstacles or stumbling blocks, the idea is that there's something preventing us from getting to Jesus. So number one, divisions. Number two, obstacles. Number three, they serve their own appetites rather than serving our Lord Jesus Christ. So in a word, they're selfish. So number three, selfish. And then number four, and this is really the characteristic mark of these dangerous people. They purposefully deceive people. It's by smooth talk and flattery, it says, that they deceive the hearts of the naive. So they're using smooth talk and flattery as a purposeful tool in order to deceive people. So Rather than just calling these particular people that Paul has in mind dangerous, I'm going to refer to them for the rest of this morning as purposeful deceivers. Purposeful deceivers. Because that really is the signature mark of this kind of person, and we're going to see that in just a moment. They're not just deceiving because they're ignorant. There are some people that are ignorant and so inadvertently deceive people because they themselves are deceived. That's not what's happening here. These people that Paul has in mind know the truth of Christianity and yet purposefully deceive by smooth talk and flattery. And we, when we bump into those purposeful deceivers, we are called to, with verse 17, avoid them. It's the last two words in the verse. Avoid them. Now, it is not usual that the Bible tells us to avoid anyone. I think a lot of us have a, a, a feel for that, right? I mean, even Matthew 39, you guys know this verse. When someone slaps you on your cheek, what are we supposed to do? We turn them the other also. We press in, even with enemies. In fact, later in Matthew 5, Jesus says, love your enemies. And so in general, even with evil enemies, we're called to go near them, to press into them, not to run away, not to avoid them. So, I think it's right for us to ask, why are we called to avoid these particular people? And the reason is this. When it comes to purposeful deceivers, 
The standard changes. Someone who is purposefully deceiving poses such a severe threat to themselves and to us that they demand a severe response. If we look at the characteristics one more time, I'm going to see what happens. I want us to see what happens when we have three of those four characteristics, but when we don't see a purpose in deception, a motivation in deception is not there. So those who cause divisions, create obstacles, they're selfish, but they're not on purpose deceiving. It's an accident. Let's see. Uh, there's an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul addresses exactly such a case. The context here is where the Corinthians are saying, hey, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Christ. They've opposed various Bible teachers, one of them being Jesus, against each other. Talk about divisions, as verse 17 talks about. But Paul doesn't say to avoid them. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is hardly a command to avoid. This is certainly a command to press in, to unite. Even though they were divided over their preferred Bible teacher, they created stumbling blocks by saying, perhaps, for example, you're opposed to Christ if you're following Paul. That's a stumbling block for sure. They were selfish. I want my Bible teacher instead of yours. I prefer him. But they were not purposefully deceptive. They had plenty of problems. But purposeful deception was not one of them. And Paul tells them to unite. I bring up this Corinthian example only to show that we only avoid people, as verse 17 says, in the extreme case of purposeful deception. Otherwise, those first three characteristics of division, creating stumbling blocks, being selfish, those are certainly sins that we need to repent of if those are in our hearts, but we do so remaining in fellowship with one another. We do not avoid each other in those cases. But at this point, you might be thinking, man, are, you, are such people even real? Like, are there really people that are just like bent and determined to deceive? I mean, that feels extreme to me. And while I agree that it is extreme, it's even, frankly, the Bible considers that extreme, it is also real, Mercy House. In 2 John, verses 7 and 8, this is what he writes. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That is a central tenet of Christianity, Jesus coming again. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. It says many deceivers, many of them have gone into the world. I won't read it now, but 3 John 9 and 10, there's a similar but specific case where this guy Diotrephes was kicking church members out of his church, some, some church leader, because they were welcoming Christians to church. That was his reason for kicking them out of church, because they were welcoming Christians to church. That's a really bad guy. Jude, verses 3 and 4, explained Jude is also talking about something similar to what Paul is describing here, people who creep into the church. Jude 3 and 4 describes how people creep into the church, people who deny Jesus, but they sneak in purposefully. This is relevant for us, Mercy House. We need to, quote, watch out for people who divide, cause to stumble, are selfish, but especially who purposefully deceive. Now, to clarify... I am not saying that I know of specific people in our midst who are doing that, 
I'm not even saying that I know that there are any for sure. I don't know that. And to be clear, neither is Paul saying that to the Romans, that he knows that those people are there. But what he is saying is remain vigilant, watch out, because whether they are on their way or they're here already, they will come. And we need to watch out for them and we need to avoid them. In verse 18, Paul says that these purposeful deceivers, in particular, deceive the hearts of the naive. Do you know who that is in our congregation? It's those children that we just had up here. Some of them can't even read the Bible for themselves yet. They will believe, for the most part, whatever we tell them about God. And they should, to be clear. I mean, Proverbs 1.8, this is God's instruction to children. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. It's right that they learn about God from us. It's right that they trust us. But they are naive. That's not an insult. That's just how they are. They're children. In Mercy House, we have had people, this was years ago, handing out anti-Trinity pamphlets, trying to convince people, oh, you guys got the Trinity wrong. Do you want your children influenced by them? Amen. So watch out, Paul says, for their sake and for ours. It is extreme, but it is also real. An important clarifying note is that what we have here in purposeful deceivers is not exactly the same thing as what we have in cases where we're called to remove someone from membership. Now, removing someone from membership is required when people just stop behaving like Christians in a determined sort of way after repeated conversations. But we still hang out with them. We still talk to them. We encourage them to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. We remain friends with them. We invite them into the congregation as a means of inviting them in to relationship with Jesus. Or at the very least, we're allowed to do that. There are some extreme cases I understand that we should, for our own safety, avoid people. I, I, I get that. But in general, the principle as it stands is that we still maintain friendship with them, but we invite them in. So we still press in, even in cases of removing someone from membership. But here, that is not the case. Here, we're required to, quote, avoid them. People like this, we don't even hang out with them. They're that dangerous. We treat them like a stranger telling us to get in their car. Jude, verses 22 and 23, talk about the same type of person that Paul's talking about in verses 17 and 18. Jude 22, 23, talks about like a hierarchy of dangerous people, if you will. The lowest level is this. Have mercy on those who doubt. So that's just more or less innocent people who are struggling with doubts about God. Like, have mercy on them. Okay. Middle grade now, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, okay? And that's middle to this, the most extreme, which is also what Paul is talking about here. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Wow. So we have mercy on them. It says that, have mercy on them. So we, we treat them like real people, okay? But we do so with fear, it says, be afraid. These are dangerous people who are lying to us about God purposefully. Jude says, hating the garment stained by the flesh. He's saying, don't even touch them. In other words, avoid them. We should still mercifully pray for them to repent, to become Christians. And if they want to do that, we should receive them. Amen. But until that happens, we cut ties 
in hopes, yes, that by doing so they're urged to repent, but mostly for the safety of the naive in our church and for our own selves. So far, this has been pretty discouraging, even scary perhaps. But that's what verse 19 is for, if you would read that with me. Verse 19 reads this, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So God is being intense with the Romans on the one hand, yes, but he is also at the same time being sensitive. He's given them the severe and the jarring truth, but now he encourages them. Look, look guys, while I need to warn you, I need to warn you to watch out. At the same time, I want you to know, Romans, you all are obedient. In fact, you're famous for your obedience, he encourages them. Their obedience, verse 19, is known to all. And so he's rejoicing over them. He's saying, guys, so far, so good. I praise God for you Romans. This isn't the case about you specifically. I have a severe word for you. That's true, he's saying. But I want you to know, y'all are doing awesome. But, and this is the second half of the verse here, but I want you to be wise as to what's good and innocent as to what's evil. He wants them to wisely recognize what's good and thus be innocent of evil. He's glad that they're obedient, but he doesn't want them in bulk to be obedient in a naive way. He's saying, don't believe everything people say. Don't believe that everybody is friendly either. They're not. Now, when the kids were up here, we talked about how we evaluate truth on the basis of the Bible, right? And I don't think that's a surprise for most of us. And just by way of reminder, that requires us each of us simply spending time with God, with his word, hearing from him through his word, and seeking with all of our hearts to do what he says. But this does not mean everybody needs to be an advanced theologian and be well-versed in all these kind of arguments about whatever the existence of God or the Trinity, whatever, you, you name the topic. We don't need to be experts at that. Praise the Lord for people who are. But for, that's not what Paul's calling the Romans to. That's not what Paul is calling all of us to either. We are simply being called to maintain an active, ongoing relationship with our Lord and hear from His Word and read our Bibles at whatever pace and seek to live out what He says in Christian community. Wisdom does not require academic training. It doesn't even us require us being especially smart. I mean, praise the Lord, a lot of you are especially smart. That's, a, that's a, what, quite a gift. But wisdom doesn't come from brilliance. It doesn't. Wisdom comes from knowing God and being obedient to his word. If we apply that wisdom rightly, we will be innocent, the goal of verse 19. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is Paul's encouragement in context in particular about purposeful deceivers. But he is turning a corner now, isn't he? He's given his final warning about purposeful deceivers, and now he gives this encouragement, which is related to the warning about the purposeful deceivers, but really it extends far, far beyond just that issue, doesn't it? He's talking about the destruction of Satan. I mean, for Paul, things just got cosmic, like all of a sudden, right? The reason he's doing that is that he's about to end his letter to the Romans. He's laid out the gospel for 15 and a half chapters, and now he's inserted this warning toward the end. And after that warning, he reminds us of the great hope that awaits us. Satan will be crushed. That's really encouraging news. 
That's encouraging news in general, but it's encouraging news specifically also regarding purposeful deceivers. They are Satan's followers. And once Satan is out of commission, so are they. For a Christian, this is very encouraging to know that when Christ comes back, there won't be dangerous people trying to ruin our faith anymore. But for a non-Christian, this should be a terrifying reality. If you're not a Christian, I'm especially talking to you right now. I want to highlight to you what Jesus says is going to happen to those who refuse to trust in him when he comes back, which is when, by the way, our text today says he's going to crush Satan. But this is what's going to happen to those who refuse to believe when Jesus comes back. Matthew 25, verse 41, the context here is Jesus has the believers on his right, the unbelievers on his left, and he, he talks about those on his left. This is what he says. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a hard word, but this is what it says. Satan will be thrown into the eternal fire. I think in some ways that's no surprise. That's not particularly shocking to us. But if you refuse to trust in Christ, this text says, so will you. He says, depart from you, curse into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If you don't trust in Christ, you will go to the same place as Satan. And so, I'm pleading with you. He literally says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is happening soon. And so I am pleading with you to trust in Christ while there is time. You can trust in him today. That's accessible to you. That's an authentic invitation. Take him up on it. We might wonder if it's backwards to say that the God of peace is crushing Satan. How do you work that out? Frankly, crushing Satan sounds quite violent, not peaceful, right? So why is he the God of peace if he's violent with Satan? That's because by crushing Satan, God is eradicating evil. That's one of the most peaceful things God could do. And so actually, it's because he is the God of peace that he will crush Satan and ruin all evil permanently thereby giving us eternal peace with him after he comes back. And he is coming soon. And that is good news. Something to notice, though, about verse 20, whose feet is God using to crush Satan? If you'll read this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet, it says. Frankly, to me, that's surprising. I mean, even Romans 12, 19 says, don't avenge yourselves. This is what God says. Don't avenge yourselves. I will repay, says the Lord. So, okay, vengeance is God's, but why are we involved? Why, why is it our feet crushing Satan? Because God shares his victory over Satan with us. As you know, we are not strong enough to crush Satan on our own. The kids were even faithful to tell us he's an angel. Angels are powerful. Every time in scripture an angel shows up, he's like, don't be afraid because they're fearful. They're, they're frightening. They're very powerful, more so than we are. But that's what the next sentence is for. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This conquest against Satan is accomplished by God, ultimately by him. It is still God who is the one crushing Satan. It's the God of peace who crushes Satan. It's not us who's credited with that, right? But he uses our feet. We get to participate in God's victory over Satan. And that gives us a little bit of light into what Paul means in Romans 8.37. When he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
I think crushing Satan qualifies us as more than conquerors, don't you? When Jesus comes back, he will crush Satan. That's going to happen because Jesus was crushed by our sins on that cross, in the words of Isaiah 53. That's what communion's about. And it's because he was crushed by our sins on that cross that we get eternal life and relationship with him. And finally, now that Paul has sufficiently warned the Romans and then also provided a counter-encouragement, he shares several greetings with them. And here they are. Verse 21, if you'd read this with me. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Without diving deep into all of these people's backgrounds and life stories, most of these people are co-workers of Paul who did ministry with him throughout the New Testament. Tertius, in particular, in verse 22, he might raise some eyebrows for us because it reads that, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. But we know Paul wrote the letter. Romans 1.1 tells us this. The reason that Tertius is said to have written the letter is because he was Paul's scribe. It was customary in the ancient world for authors to have scribes. Paul is no exception, and he allows his scribe, under his blessing, to give his own greeting. So that's what's going on in verse 22. Tertius is not a nickname for Paul or something. Paul did write it, but he dictated it to his scribe, Tertius. Now, just a general observation here from verses 21 and 23, and we're going to wrap up for the morning. The gospel moves us to greet each other, and the gospel moves us to greet each other by name. In verse 1 through 16, there are commands to greet very specific people by name. Greet, 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 greet everywhere, right? Every sentence almost starts with the command, greet so-and-so. And then we have the warning, but now we have verses 21 and 23. Timothy greets you. Jason greets you. Sosipater greets you. Everybody greeting everybody. That's how he's concluding his gospel letter with a bunch of hellos by name. By way of application, Mercy House, let's greet each other. And let's do so by name. By the way, Paul did not even know all of the Romans. He had never been to the church yet. Throughout the letter, Paul is like, guys, I, I wanted to come to you, but I couldn't. I was prevented. Throughout the letter, he says that multiple times. He had never been there. He doesn't know them all. And yet he is still determined to greet some of them by name. So for us, when people come here to our church and they visit, they're new, let's greet them. And let's greet them by name. When old friends come here, People that we see every week, let's greet them. Let's greet them by name. This is actually, transparent moment, quite hard for me. I'm so bad with names. I, I really hate it. Often, sometimes, I'll actually do a trick where I'll hug someone in a circle, and I'll whisper, what's their name? And they'll tell me. Like, I, I, but I hate that I have to rely on that. That's not good. That's not cool. God cares about names. Maybe some of you can relate to my struggle there. And there's a little... Hint, if you ever bump into that problem, you can hug someone and whisper that in their ear. But anyway, people care to be known by name. I can tell you from experience when someone's like, hey, Alden, so good to see you. And I'm like, hey, man. You know, like, it's like deflation. I mean, they, they just melt. It's, it's heartbreaking. We don't love that. It, it means a lot to be known by name. We have that experience ourselves. I, I don't like it when people forget my name. How hypocritical is that? But here it is. Let's love our God by loving our neighbor 
by greeting those neighbors by name. If you're interested, by the way, in putting this into practice, we literally actually have a welcome team who stands at the door every Sunday to just welcome people. And that's an important ministry as we see in this text. So if you want to do that, you can go find Noreen or some of the other staff. Noreen's in the back. She's, she's waving now. Yes, yes, yes. You can find her. If you want to greet people, if this is a moment where God is putting that in your heart, go do it. We need people to greet. That's an important ministry. That is distinctly Christian to greet especially well. So let's do it. But before we do that, let's take communion. And let's remember what Christ did for us on the cross. Let's remember what he will do in crushing Satan. And let's remember what he accomplished for us. And that is eternal life with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for promising to crush Satan under our feet, Lord. That is truly an encouragement, as scary as it is. It is an encouragement at the same time that we don't have to do this scary work of discernment and watching out and avoiding forever, Lord, because you're coming back. Thank you that you're coming back. May we await for your return, God. That is our great hope, is your return. Even Proverbs tells us, hope that is deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And God, ha, when you come back, we will be win in the midst of that tree of life, God. And so thank you that that hope of your return will not be deferred. It will not be disappointed. You are coming back, and that's sure, because you say so, Lord. So thank you, God. Thank you for dying for us to give us eternal life with you. Thank you ultimately for protecting us by crushing Satan. And we pray that we would now come before you as people who recognize that they're not worthy of you, who recognize that it's by your grace that we are enabled into such a conquest. It's by your grace that we're welcomed into fellowship with you in the first place. Thank you for accomplishing that and affecting that grace on the cross. May we remember that now as we take communion, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.